Welcome to the Public Morality. Back in August 2019, the New York Times Magazine published the 1619 Project. The long-form journalism project sought to reframe the nation's history by illustrating the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black people at the very center of the American narrative. The original printing consisted of 100 pages, 10 essays, a photo essay, along with a collection of poems and additional stories. Multiple writers, through their unique lenses, addressed the impact of slavery that began in 1619 into the present day. It was popular evidence not only by the initial sales, but also by the demands for reprinting. It was also controversial, evidenced by the number of factual errors contained, particularly in its creator, Nicole Hannah-Jones's initial piece. A number of historians sympathetic to the project's mission took out an open letter denoting the inaccuracies of the 1619 Project. Since its initial publishing, the 1619 Project has been a proverbial lighting rod for conservative opposition. The original printing, along with the reprinting, has created a demand that is now in the form of a brand new book. To discuss the 1619 Project is Damon Linker. Linker is a contributing editor for the New Republic and is a senior writing fellow in the Center for Critical Writing at the University of Pennsylvania. He penned an essay recently in This Week entitled The Model at the Middle of the 1619 Project. Damon Linker, welcome to The Public Morality. Well, thanks for having me on. It's a, it's a great honor to be here. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons uh, we wanted to have you on um, your piece in the week offered, in my in my estimation, uh, judicious criticisms of the 1619 Project on the merits. Um, you did not uh, seem to, as I found other uh, pieces to do, was to conflate the project with the entire essay provided by Nicole Hannah-Jones, nor did you offer the 1619 Project as some sort of... Uh, extension of, of, of critical race theory. That said, uh, let's begin by having you offer, a, say, a brief distillation of what how you view the, the 1619 Project. Yeah, well, I mean, in my view, the the thing that uh, I, I find uh, troubling or uh, worthy of critical reflection in the project has to do mostly with the framing of it rather than uh, that much of its content. Um, and and I, I wrote the column to sort of point to what I see as a kind of a tension or a contradiction in how the, the project is framed even by the people putting it forth, whether it's Nicole Hannah-Jones or uh, uh, what, uh, what's the name of the guy? Uh, I, yeah, uh, it's eluding me right now. The, well, the editor of the New York times magazine, a uh, oh, Silverstein. Yeah. But Silverstein. Yes. Yes. Cause he wrote a, a very interesting, long historiographical essay in the times magazine, uh, a little over a week ago in which, uh, he reflected on the project. And I think I saw the same contradiction or tension there. And that has to do with, is the 1619 Project supposed to be increasing our awareness of the complexity, the moral tensions and contradictions in American history so that we understand those contradictions and tensions and nuances better and more adequately? 
Or is it instead trying to uh, replace an overly simplified sort of default conservative nationalist view of America, uh, an overly, uh, maybe you could say, uncritically patriotic vision of the country? Is it trying to replace that with a kind of counter narrative where uh, slavery and its its horrible racist legacy is at the very center of what it means to be an American. And I think the rhetoric surrounding the project in its what general journalists call the display copy, meaning like headlines, subheadlines, photo captions, poll quotes within essays. In the original 1619 project, um, that material very much went to the more, I think, radical option of saying this is about the true founding of America. It's not 1603 when the first settlers arrived, white settlers arrived in Virginia. It's not uh, when the Puritans made landfall in Plymouth Rock. No, it's 1619, the year that the first slaves arrived from Africa on ships. That's the quote, true founding of America. Now, my view is that talking in terms of any one date being the founding of America is always going to be a simplification. And you don't replace the oversimplification of the kind of kind of pious homiletical view of American history with an alternative counter homily that actually seeks to place uh, one of the worst things about American history at the very core of what it means to be an American. And I think both intellectually and politically, this this was a mistake. Now, journalistically, it might have been great because it got tons of traffic and it got people yelling and it got everybody uh, screaming about the 1619 Project. Great for publicity to give it that more radical spin. But again, as, as an intellectual proposition and as a political proposition, which then I think gives the right wing a kind of ammunition to attack what the 1619 project was all about and its substance, I think it was it was not a great idea. And and I I would be in favor of a much more complex view of history and of the project to say what 1619 is here to do is to help all of us, black, white, whatever, try to understand that our country is is a is is a complicated complex morally fraught uh, exercise and enterprise that combines admirable things with execrable things and then lots of stuff in the gray middle and so that sort of was my uh, my critical take in in some. I hope it didn't go on too long there. No, no. You 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 mentioned the um, the way that the project has been attacked uh, by say the, the the conservative side of the ledger. Um, why do you, why do you suppose there has been so much clamor about the project, both in support and as well as in opposition? Well, I do think a lot of it has to do with what I described as this more radical framing. But underneath that, I think we're really talking about, and maybe this will be another column I'll write about this eventually, um, we're really dealing with differences of opinion about what history is for. 
Is history, the study of the past, especially if it's political history, the history of a country told by people in that country? That would be us. So we're Americans talking about our own history as Americans. Is the point of that to provide a kind of useful political civic religion for us, kind of uh, a, a sort of account of who we are that is useful politically and to kind of uh, galvanize our identity as citizens of this polity. Is that the view of it? Or is it the way, I think, in its best sense, um, professional historians look at it, scholars who are trained in, in doctoral programs to be historians and go to archives and sort through the, the kind of the fine-grained detail of the past. For that view of history, it often involves almost the diametric opposite. It involves Again, the process of complexification, of, of seeing how multidimensional the past is. There's so many actors. They're all so they're 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 the 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 people who have power, the people who who lack power at various gradations. They're different ethnic groups, races, immigrants coming in at all different times, and so forth. And you can just multiply this uh, by by more and more complexity the more you look at it more closely. I think we're dealing with here that I do think in, in a lot of the details of the very good essays that were in the original 1619 project package in the Times Magazine, lots of material for that complexification process, lots of good stuff from the latest cutting edge research by professional historians. But then it was placed in a frame that sort of took on that first view of history, the more uh, political version of history where history is there to be studied for the sake of its civic usefulness. And that form of history is often a more simple uh, view of, of like America is exceptional, both in the sense of unique and in the sense of really, really great, uh, maybe the best country ever. Um, and that's what more conservative type uh, uh, political actors look at history for. But then the 1619 project seemed to be framed as like trying to overthrow that, not in favor of complexity, but in favor of a counter narrative for the sake of sort of moving uh, a left wing progressive narrative to the center, meaning and not political center, but kind of to the middle of our conversation. So we would replace the overly simplified American exceptionalist narrative with one that points out, it, it tries to claim that slavery is the core of what it means to be an American. Its legacy defines the essence of the nation. It shaped capitalism at its core. It, it shapes transportation policy, where we build highways, where you can live, uh, our economy, our culture, and all of these ways sort of interweaving racial oppression through everything. And that, I think, while there is a lot of truth to, to, to racial oppression being present in those aspects of America, it still is not the core. It is not the center. And the reason why is, I think, in the end, that there 
strictly speaking, is no center to what is basically a continent-wide civilization that's been going on for about 400 years. And it just, it is, it is always, again, intellectually deceptive to talk in terms of anything being the center of something that complicated. I mean, I mentioned in passing immigrants. I mean, it's not clear to me how the 1619 Project outlook in this more radical framing of it can really account for the fact of waves of millions of immigrants coming in from Ireland and Italy and Jewish Eastern Europe and and then Asia, Chinese, Japanese immigrants now in our in our last several decades uh, from Mexico and of course the Mexican influence on the border states long before there was official immigration because those states were taken from Mexico in the first place and there was a lot of blending of those cultures. Those are really important parts of America. They're not the center either, but the 1619 Project can't really say much about those aspects of America because they are sort of peripheral to slavery and its legacy. You see what I mean? Like that, that's that's what I mean about don't overstate, um, don't turn the criticism of the simplifications of the conservatives into a kind of counter story, an alternative simplification for the sake of a progressive agenda. It's, it's replacing one defect with a different kind of opposite defect, at least in my outlook on it. And that list that you just gave, I would also add in there, um, you know, westward expansion and the appropriation of native American lands There's very little, um, discussed about the impact um, on native on Native Americans in the, in, sure. the, in the westward expansion and the creation of a morality in the in, in the context of manifest destiny to justify that appropriation. Absolutely. And that and that that whole rhetoric of manifest destiny and appropriation justified theological appropriation of it, because this was all very much wrapped up with and still is today in kind of uh, resonances with a, a sort of uh, theological predestination that that we are the America is the new Israel and God is on our side and 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 he intends this land to be ours from the east coast all the way to the pacific ocean and and in our acts along the way and the injustices that we engage in along the way god is still favors us in this this is this is our destiny just like the ancient israelites were destined for its multi-millennial uh, project on the on the surface of the earth because they were God's chosen people. It's a, a, the Lincoln's famous line about how America is an almost chosen nation is a gesture toward trying to uh, uh, you know acknowledge that very deep strand in American history that goes back to the Puritans and then gets kind of reinvented and reinjected into our rhetoric over and over again. And frankly, I think this the seventeen 76 commission that Trump launched uh, as a direct challenge to the 1619 project is the most recent uh, kind of rebirth 
of this very old theologically tinged way of trying to understand America. And I'm I'm very much a critic of that as well. And I write I write at least as many columns critical of Trump and what's become of the American right as I do about what I see as some of the excesses of, of the progressive side as well, because I see them trying to revive the simplification uh, for the sake of the right. But again, I, interestingly, I mean, I did make originally this, try to make this point about these two notions of history. And I guess you could say that I'm trying to champion a more, the, the more uh, complex, more scholarly form of history that tends to uh, to point to complexity uh, rather than the simplifications of more political or more politicized forms of history. Well, we uh, several months ago, we had a historian Gordon Wood on, on the broadcast, and uh, I can assure you that Professor Wood shares that um, uh, observation, your latter observation. Um, you know, one of the things... Uh, that I recall when, 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 when sort of the clamor first came out about the 1619 Project. In the retreat, I, I believe it was uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones that said, well, I'm not a historian, you know, I'm a journalist. D does that suffice? Well, I mean, if she's talking about the specific historical inaccuracy that was in her original essay, uh, then... You know, I guess then you issue a you issue a correction and say, oh, in this passage, I overstated this. You include, I guess they made a change of adding some people or something. She made a very strong statement that that those who supported the American Revolution uh, were doing it to defend slavery. And a lot of historians, Gordon Wood, among others, rose up to say this is not historically accurate. So they add they re. <clears throat> online, you can always just update the text. So uh, the original printed version can't be corrected, but online it now says some people or some of the people who supported the revolution. Um, if that's the case, I do think it's acceptable to say, yeah, all right, I flubbed something. I'm not a trained historian. I read history a lot as a journalist, but I'm, I, I made a mistake. Sorry. Uh, and, and that's fine that journalists do make mistakes, even when history has nothing to do with it. And that happens. Um, I actually had no major objection to Nicole, uh, Nicole's original essay, the one that actually won the Pulitzer Prize. Um, I think it was a very powerful, effective piece of writing. And I never really harped on, on this bit about, well, you have this error in there. I I'm not a professional historian myself. I mean, I have a, I have a, a master's in history, and then I switched over to poli sci for a PhD a long time ago. But I'm not a trained historian, and I'm certainly not an American historian. Um, I, I studied mostly Europe when I was uh, a grad student. But um, if the historians want to, you know, say, you know, this gets something wrong based on the latest uh, historical research, then that's their, that's sort of their thing. And, and that's fine. And clearly, the Times was convinced enough by the objection to make that change. Um, but in general, I think it's perfectly fine for intellectuals, journalists, uh, kind of 
uh, lay men and lay women to simply read history and to talk about it and to and to even make very strong political arguments on the basis of their study of that. That's totally, you know, to, to deny the uh, the ability to do that is to uh, to, I think, try to stifle debate in a free society. And I would never uh, make that case. So I think in general, I think <laughs> uh, I think Nicole uh, doesn't and this is true about many people, not just her, but I don't think she necessarily does herself any favors by hanging out on Twitter. Um, like many people on Twitter, she gets baited very easily and kind of says very sort of extreme formulations of her positions that then she ends up having to walk back and then becomes the subject of thousands of angry tweets among her enemies. And it, I, I don't think it does uh, does anything she cares about really gets advanced very much by that. Um, so I, I wish she would spend a little less time on Twitter, frankly. I think she comes off much better as most of us do um, in in properly edited prose where, you know, we have someone watching our back and saying, you know, you might not want to say it exactly like this. You might want to add some nuance here. Um, we got to make sure you have evidence for what you're saying. Whereas on Twitter, you know, you can just pop off. And I, I, I sort of think she she and the project would be better served by a little less tweeting, I guess. <laughs> I'm speaking with writer uh, David Linkler, who wrote a, a very uh, persuasive piece on the week. That's why we want to have him on the public morality. And Damon, you know, I guess one of the subtexts from uh, your piece that I took away is sort of this ongoing question, who gets to tell the American narrative? And I wonder how you saw that question. Well, um, I mean, at one level, I would say we all do, because simply by engaging in politics, we make references to a kind of common world that we all share. And that world has a past and that past resonates and echoes throughout that present world. And also, you know, in engaging in politics, we're always talking about the future that we'd like to see. And that is itself informed by our present, which is informed by the past. So there's no getting around those kinds of kind of amateur historical statements. And I don't mean amateur in a condescending way either. I mean, I mean it in the original kind of the, the original etymological sense of, of someone who is doing something out of love. Uh, and and it, in that sense, it would be love of our common world together. So I have no problem with that. I do think, though, that as with so many things in our modern world, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of knowledge uh, going on. And there are people in our world who are trained to be historians, and they do the hard work of actually looking at the real historical record rather than the uh, sort of idealized version of it that gets handed down and often talked about in our uh, in our common world. So I would I would counsel, I guess, like, yes, by all means, talk about our common history. But as a rule of thumb, defer to the people who 
sort of know what they're talking about. Uh, and now it, this has to be a dialectical interplay. I'm also not someone who is a reflexive kind of technocrat and then applies that to historians like, well, you know, always shut up and let the historians tell you how it really is and then kind of put them up on a pedestal and give them political power to make decisions on our behalf. So it has to be um, I mean, I very much appreciate Nicole's work, also Jamel Bowie at the Times uh, and, uh, um, you know, uh, Tennessee Coates and many people writing on these topics who who actually are not trained historians, but who nevertheless read a lot of history and let that history inform what they say about it. I would much rather read, say, an opinion column uh, on these subjects, even if I don't agree with, uh, agree with the kind of the political angle uh, entirely, at, if, if it shows that it's based on a rich and deep reading of the latest history, that's, that's a very good contribution to public debate, and we need more of that. So, uh, you know, I saw on your list of people who've been on, on your show in the last uh, couple of months, I think you had Eric Foner on yes uh, you know he's he's definitely one of the greats and then he's had many many students who have done excellent work as historians on reconstruction and related topics so you know there's so many great works uh, works of history so much great research going on uh you know but you also don't defer too much not only in the sense of of like you don't want to put historians on a pedestal but also because historians disagree amongst themselves as well you know they don't all take the same interpretation uh, i mean about the founding you have you have Gordon Wood, uh, who you said you had on recently, who takes one line, but there are others uh, who write on that period who take a very different one, and and that's part of uh, part of what it means to to be a thinker and an engaged citizen is to realize that uh, you know we're all trying to figure it out, and and it's all a conversation that never ends. Uh, and there's never any full agreement about anything well you know I, I was just thinking when you were giving that last answer um uh, i referenced this book last week but um uh, cornell professor edward baptist the title of his book the half has not been told well that title you know comes from uh, a slave articulating um from the slave narratives during the roosevelt administration and he says the half has not been told so the the perspective of the of the former enslaved uh, is a different one than the plantation owner. So there's a perspective to all of this that we can all see the same thing, but doesn't perspective hone our understanding of history as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's been a huge advance. I mean, one great thing about uh, Silverstein's essay in the uh, Jake Silverstein's essay in the Times Magazine that I referenced earlier, shortly after, you know, I forgot his name for a moment. Um, uh, his piece was actually an excellent overview. And I'd recommend that your listeners take a look at it. A really good inter uh, overview of, of American historiography, which is kind of, it's a complicated, uh, highfalutin sounding word that just means the history of history. It's the history of how history has been written in a given subject area. And it was an overview of how Americans have told history. And it is, it is in effect, a story of 
how history has moved from my one category of the more simplified homiletical uh, patriotic version of history to a more complex nuanced one. And it isn't just that we've looked at more archives. It's that we've also looked down. So history, even you know, history say a hundred years ago could be very well done, but it would only be looking at the elite white uh, leaders of America. So the American, the original constitutional framers and the generation uh, of them who, who then became the first presidents and then the Jacksonian revolution and the people in, in charge of the political system then leading up to the Civil War and Lincoln. And you would basically be talking about elites. And then if you did more cultural uh, history, you would look at theologians and writers and so forth. And that stuff's all great. I mean, I like that kind of history quite a lot. And it's still done well today by some people, intellectual and cultural and political history. But but the, the what Silverstein's essay in the Times Magazine was very good at is showing how this had huge impact on how we understood the history of Black Americans, because aside from an occasional like a Frederick Douglass, there were essentially no elites for a very long time in American history who were Black. And so you were not getting their side of the story. And so we not only uh, kind of history has not only improved by looking more closely and carefully at archival sources, but also by turning our gaze sort of downward in the socioeconomic hierarchy to slaves and their descendants and free blacks who weren't slaves uh, and lived maybe in New England and they made contributions and yet were also moved to the periphery of American life. And then that peripheral move ends up echoed in the early history written of those times. So we need to go back and do that work. And that's been a huge uh, boon for the study of the past. Our understanding of what it meant to be an American in past eras is vastly improved by having made that shift. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, and it's a great, it's a great contribution to do that. And we must continue it into new populations and then uh, doing a better job of reimagining uh, what we've already uh, unearthed. Uh, in those excavations of those populations, yeah. Here's a passage um, um, from, from the piece that you wrote, and I'll follow up with a question, but you wrote, quote, the broader objection concerned the sweeping language, uh, sweeping language being the, what you talked earlier about the sort of oversimplification, which could be found throughout the package and which played an especially prominent part in one essay by sociologist Matthew Desmond focused on supposedly decisive influence of slavery on the distinctive brutality of American capitalism. Unquote. Now, the thinking of slavery ensnares sociology, politics, and, and certainly uh, racism. But the overarching motivation, as I saw it, uh, is sort of the amorality fueled by the demands of capitalism. And wasn't that the subtext of, of, of Desba's article, um, that the distinctive brutality uh, of America's fueled by sort of this, these amoral impulses that are demanded by capitalism? 
Well, um, this is a complicated subject, and I'm not an economist, although I, you know, you mentioned Ed Baptist. He's one of several uh, younger historians who've sort of launched a subfield of American history called the history of capitalism. And, you know, as a pluralist, a, a kind of liberal pluralist, I am all in favor of new contributions to historical knowledge and new ways of looking at things. I'm even willing to defend exaggerations that are there deliberately to sort of rewrite the balance. So if if things are too tilted in one direction, sometimes you make a, you can make a pretty big leap in historical knowledge by make, kind of overstating your case on the other side precisely to kind of upset the settled uh, consensus. And I would say that there is some value to the history of capitalism literature on those grounds. Uh, I would say, though, that I do think it's overstated. And I, I would point to, I don't have their names uh, before me right now, but they're in, they're, there have been scholarly critiques of some of this literature pointing out that it goes a little bit far in trying to claim um, the decisive importance of slavery for why American capitalism takes the form that it does. I, I will say just here off the top of my head without those names in front of me that for me, one decisive uh, concern I have about it is the very fact that the Industrial Revolution, which is really where modern capitalism kind of comes into its own as a distinctive form of kind of highly advanced uh, division of labor, um, arises in Europe before it does in our country and is plenty plenty severe and plenty brutal. And it really didn't have much directly to do with slavery at all. And so the argument ends up coming down to, I believe, the way that this literature in American history now tries to show that the way slaves were bought and sold and traded and the bookkeeping methods that were used to describe the value of individual slaves to the slave owners, and then the way that cotton plantations ended up being organized and, and cotton sales ended up being structured economically because of slavery is that's what led to the development of capitalism in the way that it did in this country. And I simply, I, I just, that strikes me as an overstatement. I mean, in addition to the, the comparison to Europe and the rise, especially in Great Britain, of advanced industrial capitalism before and just as viciously as here, you also have the fact that the North is actually industrialized before the South. And again, you can say that slavery might have some influence on that, but that, of course, was not the region in which slavery was by far the more dominant uh, social institution and economic institution. So it just strikes me as um, an attempt to, again, I will concede that maybe they are, this literature is highlighting aspects of capitalism that it would be good to focus on, 
because they've been neglected. But I would venture to say that probably over the next generation or two of scholarship, we will see some of the claims in that literature pulled back a little bit uh, and and rendered a little, with a little bit more nuance than that literature in its initial offering uh, tended to do. I think it's an overstatement. Mm. Well, um, you also wrote, um, quote, no professionally trained historian writing in good faith about the American past in 2021 would dispute that black history is a critically important aspect of American history, unquote. Isn't that part of the challenge that what we're calling, quote, unquote, black history as well as other uh, marginalized histories are treated, my words, with a sort of an adjunct status rather than part of the American narrative? Uh, I do think that that is a problem, and I would very much be on the side of those who want it, who would say I'm in favor of integrating it more. I actually, as a liberal, uh, as opposed to a progressive or conservative on either side, I'm, I'm very much would very much prefer that the history of black America be integrated into the history of America uh, rather than the way. And I, I understand kind of in structural terms why it's developed this way in the modern university, because it's a bureaucratic institution. And so like, it makes sense to create like a department of Afro-American studies. Um, if if there aren't a lot of slots in the extant history department for people to who will do that. So say if say there are only two openings over a couple of years in the history department, it might make sense to just set up a separate department just for people to study that rather than to wait two decades for there to be several openings in history and for every hire in the history department to be in that, that can be destabilizing in its own way. Um, so it makes a kind of sense, but it is not ideal for there to be departments of Afro-American studies, Latino American studies, uh, you know, gender studies, you know, all of these, the study studies. Um, I, I think um, hopefully, uh, I don't know if I'm hopeful enough to believe it will really happen, but ideally we would move toward a new synthesis where history departments study all of that stuff under the rubric of American history, because that's what American history is. We are um, a motley band. Of, we're just, we're, we're a, 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 a multi, a Joseph's uh, Technicolor dream coat of a country. We're like made up of a million pieces and swatches. And, and it's important that the story of everything we tell have those elements within it. Um, that it's, that, you know, we, we study, say, you know, we, and, and this kind of simplification happens in our politics all the time. You know, we study where are we in favor of, uh, you know, minority rights? Yes. But then you drill down and you realize that actually like, you know, Hispanic Americans and black Americans don't agree about a lot and black Americans. Actually, there are a lot more militant uh, younger blacks who are kind of more on the further progressive left, but then lots of 
uh, maybe often a little older black Americans are actually more moderate and supported uh, Joe Biden and want more money for funding police. And then you got the, you know, the, the defund police on the left. Then among Hispanics, you have huge divergences and disagreements among Hispanics over, you know, you're the one big thing in the political news over the last year has been that, um, you know, Latinos who are who don't have college degrees are drifting rightward and sort of more of them are voting for Trump, not a majority, but enough to maybe make a difference in our very close presidential elections in this country. And, and then, you know, and you also have the difference that like when Bernie Sanders ran for president, he did incredibly well in the Latino population in California but not very well at all uh, in that same population in Texas. That points to a very different kind of Hispanic population, different core of concerns and so forth. So I could go on and on, but you get the point. The point is, yes, we're complicated and we need to bring the complication toward the center and that creates a center that really isn't a proper center. It's a kind of constellation of perspectives that needs to be in conversation with itself. <laughs> Things fall apart for which the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. Is that the new American narrative? <laughs> <laughs> maybe so, maybe so. I like to think in my naivete that uh, we could get a new story that incorporates all of that in an appreciation of our complexity and what we, what we do share, which is, uh, frankly, I mean, isn't it true that everybody believes in liberty. We disagree about what liberty consists in and how to get it, but we want to be free and, and, and equal in our freedom. If you say that to almost any American, even if they disagree pretty profoundly about what it means, we probably can affirm that as an ideal, and that's something to build on, yeah. I think. Well, well, hopefully we will all take a page from uh, Zechariah 9 and all become prisoners of hope. Uh, Damon Linker, thank you so much, sir, for joining me today on The Public Morality. And thanks for having me. I've enjoyed the conversation. That was Damon Linker. Stay tuned as I speak with law professor John Gross about the verdict in the Kyle Rittenhouse case. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome back. Depending on where one sat on America's political continuum, they were either elated or bewildered that Kyle Rittenhouse was found not guilty for killing two individuals and injuring a third during the 2020 demonstration for a police shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Rittenhouse, then 17, traveled some 33 miles from his home in Antioch, Illinois, to Kenosha. Rittenhouse claimed self-defense, and a jury of his peers agreed. My guest, University of Wisconsin Law Professor John Gross, wrote an op-ed for the Wisconsin State Journal that he felt Rittenhouse, prior to the decision, would be exonerated largely because of the way the law for self-defense was written in the state of Wisconsin. John Gross, welcome to The Public Morality. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm. Now, in the introduction, I stated that you wrote prior to the actual verdict that you felt if the jury applied the law of self-defense as it is written in the state of Wisconsin, 
there would be a good chance that uh, Kyle Rittenhouse would have been vindicated, which turned out to be the case. What was it in the law specifically that made you feel that way? Well, we all knew the facts of this case. I, I mean, the, the, the coverage of the case and, and the, the reports that sort of reconstructed the events of that night, where the shootings occurred, the video that we all watched. Um, so, so we knew what the defense was going to be. And if you raise the issue of self-defense in Wisconsin, which Mr. Rittenhouse was definitely going to raise this as an issue, the prosecution has to prove to the jury that you did not act in self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's a very high burden for them. And with all of the chaos that was happening around Mr. Rittenhouse and under all of those circumstances that we were able to see, I just didn't feel like the prosecution was going to be able to meet that burden. Now, when you say that's a high bar, is that a high bar for Wisconsin or is that a high bar in, in just legally speaking in general? It, it, it's a high bar legally speaking in general. And, and pretty much all of the states or almost all states follow this same rule that if the defendant raises the issue, then the prosecution has to disprove it. And, that, that has been the law for a really long time in the U.S., in the majority of jurisdictions. And there's a good reason for that. The good reason is you can imagine a scenario where, let's say, someone is the victim of domestic abuse and they wind up shooting or stabbing their significant other, their spouse, and claim that, that they were about to be seriously harmed. Well, nobody has video of that. There are no witnesses to that, unlike Mr. Rittenhouse's case. And so... Do we want to make sure that the prosecution can prove that the person was not acting in self-defense in that scenario? We sure do. We don't want to send an innocent person to jail. So Mr. Rittenhouse's case, because it was unique in many ways, um, because of the surrounding facts and circumstances, it, it created a situation where that standard, which normally makes a lot of sense, felt to a lot of people like it no longer made sense. Um, one of the things um, I sort of joke about that uh, before any legal proceedings, there's always a, a first, the, the initial trial is always the one held in the court of public opinion um, where there's no burden to attend law school or pass the bar unless you're talking about your lo local tavern. That, that said, I want to run some of, the, some of the bullets by you um, that, would, that dominated the conversation. I would like to have you... Uh, tell me in terms of legally speaking why these uh, were not accurate. One of the arguments we heard often was the, that he was not legally allowed to possess a gun that uh, he used to kill two people and seriously injure a third. How does, did, did that factor into this uh, ruling? Well, I, I think it definitely factored into people's opinion of the case because it, it was widely reported that he was not permitted to have the gun. This possession of the gun was, in fact, illegal under Wisconsin law. The prosecution charged him with that. They charged him as, as being in possession of a firearm under the age of 18. And it looked certainly like they were going to get a conviction on that. Uh, up until the point when the judge in the case decided that the way the law was written in Wisconsin, he, it was actually not applicable to him. And so that charge wound up being dismissed. But I think the idea that he was Possessing this illegal firearm, definitely, I think, as you say, in the court of public opinion, that was a fact that, that strongly suggested he should be convicted of more serious crimes because he had a gun uh, that he wasn't allowed to have. 
Uh, how about the fact that he was in Kenosha at a time when the curfew was already in place? Again, I think that factors into people's view of the reasonableness of his actions overall. He's carrying a weapon he's not allowed to have. He's in downtown Kenosha and he's not allowed to be there. And for some folks, that's enough, right? It's enough to say he's carrying a, a, an assault style weapon, an AR-15 that is illegal for him to have. And he's now in a place where it is illegal for him to be because of this curfew order. And so can he claim the privilege of self-defense? And for most people, they were thinking, no, he shouldn't be allowed to. And then, and then finally, there, there, there was the one that just the mere fact that he is carrying an AR-15 assault rifle in the midst of a demonstration that's already a powder keg, if you would, in public, puts others on, uh, on alarm. And so any attempts to disarm him um, seem, would seem justified based on the fact that he, he was in a position to use deadly force. Does it, did, did that factor in at all? I mean, this is an area of the law where I think people should really evaluate whether or not these types of open carry laws that have become increasingly popular in states make sense. Because, you know, it's not just that he's carrying a gun. He's carrying a, a rifle with, you know, that, can, that, that is commonly used in mass shootings. He has it strapped to his chest. Um, to a lot of people, that in and of itself is provocative, and, and they may look at someone like that who's carrying that type of weapon in the way that he's carrying it and think to themselves, I feel unsafe. I'm the one whose life may be under threat, and so even though I don't have a weapon myself, I want to disarm this person. And so it, 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 it's a reasonable thing for people to feel, but with open carry laws, and Wisconsin is an open carry state, the law is telling people, well, you're not supposed to be alarmed about someone openly carrying a weapon like that. But I think that's inconsistent with the way many of us feel. And in a situation like this, it's inconsistent with common sense. Hmm. Now, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the case of the Wisconsin self-defense law, is, is there a um, duty to retreat? There is not an explicit duty to retreat. Many states do have a duty to retreat. It is a very old rule that goes all the way back to England and the common law. The only exception being when you're in your home. Um, that's when you don't have a duty to retreat. And again, states have increasingly been adopting these stand your ground laws, which say you don't have to retreat before using deadly force. Wisconsin does not have a duty to retreat, but they also do not have a stand your ground law. Wisconsin law just says that the use of force overall has to be reasonable. And as part of the evaluation of whether or not it was reasonable, the jury can consider whether or not the defendant had an option to retreat. So Wisconsin is sort of in the middle here in terms of the duty to retreat versus stand your ground. Uh, I, I, I'm sorry, if you could just, uh, I, I'm assuming that I, I'm not alone. Um, could you explain? Just explain the difference between stand your ground and the duty to retreat. So a stand your ground law says that if I 
am under a threat. If somebody is threatening me with serious physical violence that will result in harm or death, and I am armed, I have the right to use deadly force against them. And the jury is not allowed to consider whether I had the duty to retreat. So if somebody is confronting me on the street with a knife and threatening to stab me, and I pull out a gun and immediately shoot them, right? The jury is not allowed in a state that has a stand your ground law to say, well, that wasn't a reasonable use of self-defense because you could have tried to back away from the person with the knife. You could have tried to leave the area. So with states who have those types of laws, they're giving people an opportunity, and I hate to say it that way, but it really is, they're creating an opportunity for people to use deadly force when most of us, I think, would say it wasn't necessary for them to take a life. Now, I under, it's understandable that, that many um, critiquing the case, I'm not saying it's right, but it's understandable that people look at the outcome. And um, in this case, those who felt that Rittenhouse should have been guilty are displeased with the outcome, and those who obviously thought he should have been found not guilty were pleased. But um, one of the things I, I gathered from your piece that a lot of the uh, outcome of this case rested on laws passed by the Wisconsin legislature. Would that be accurate, sir? Yes, yes. I mean, I, I think this case was, like I said, it was being driven really uh, by this burden of proof that the that the prosecution has to disprove that the defendant was acting in self-defense. Hmm. Now, I realize this, this this takes us away from matters of law um, into the realm of, of politics, but if we follow the logical conclusion of your response, um, we could just sort of rewind um, the Rittenhouse verdict, and it'll take us to not only the Wisconsin Republican majority, but the way that state has managed at the state level to, to, to gerrymander many districts that, that sort of uh, 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 cement a Republican majority. I, I think it's true. I think, look, Wisconsin under the Republican legislature adopted both open carry and concealed carry. And, and prior to that, people who walked around with the type of weapon that Mr. Rittenhouse did that night in situations like the one he was in were typically, or at least could be arrested by the police for disorderly conduct. That carrying a weapon of that type in a situation like that was likely to provoke a disturbance, which is what the disorderly conduct statute is designed for. People who do things which could create some type of public confrontation, disorder or disruption can be arrested. The legislature specifically wrote into the disorderly conduct statute that it was not disorderly conduct to be walking around openly carrying firearms. And so there's a lot of blame to go around for what happened that night in Kenosha. Does some of that blame deservedly fall on a legislature that is willing to authorize behavior that I think many, if not most people think is unreasonable because they want to send a message about being pro-gun, yeah, that's definitely part of it. And so um, if officers had the power to arrest those folks who were walking around Kenosha that night, 
carrying those weapons, if the officers could have gotten them off the street, would this tragedy have happened? Probably not. But under Wisconsin law, because open carry is okay, they were allowed to be there, and what happened happened. Uh, and I, I know, I know, where our focus is primarily on the law, but I would just venture to say, um, if you and I were uh, in Australia in the Great Barrier Reef, and for some reason I cut my wrist and I dove in the water and then got surrounded by great white sharks, I mean. I think part of you would say, well, Byron, you should you should not have dove into the Great Barrier Reef with, with while you're bleeding. Um, I think I think one of the things that said, I think it's hard for people to grasp. I'd like to have you unpack it legally that here's an individual who lives in a different state, drives, what, 33 miles from Antioch, Illinois to Kenosha. How why does that not have any bearing? So. When, when we talk about the law of self-defense, people aren't permitted to claim self-defense if they are the aggressors in a case, if they provoke the confrontation. And I think for a lot of people, looking at what Mr. Rittenhouse did, they view this as a provocation. As you said, he's coming from a different state. He's carrying with him a weapon that he thought, whatever the judge's final decision was about this, Mr. Rittenhouse himself said he did not think he could legally have that gun. And he's driving to a location where there are there's already a, a, a civil disruption in place, and there's already a lot of tension and the possibility for violence. And he's entering that situation when he doesn't need to as a 17-year-old with this high-powered weapon. And people look at this and they say, isn't this enough? of a provocation. Isn't he really the aggressor in this situation? The law focuses on what was the interaction between Mr. Rittenhouse and Mr. Uh, Rosenbaum, the person he shot, in the minutes, the seconds, leading up to him pulling the trigger. And so he doesn't lose this argument about acting in self-defense just because he put himself into a position that most of us would look at and say, that was incredibly irresponsible to behave that way. Um, and I, I understand people are struggling with that. People are struggling with that. And, and there's, a, there's an expression that bad facts make bad law. And, and these are some really bad facts. And it leads to a legal result that most people feel is disappointing and doesn't really, for them, make them feel like the criminal justice system is working the way it should. Hmm. Finally, um, based on your experience, is, is Mr. Ridhouse in jeopardy at the federal level at all? Or is this case done? No, I, I really do think this is this case is done. Um, federal charges typically involve law enforcement, a state actor who commits some violation of civil rights that can subject you to a federal prosecution. But in this case, Mr. Rittenhouse is just a private citizen. Um, and so I can't see a, a nexus to get him into federal court with any particular charge. I, I know some people have reported, you know, he, he crossed state lines with a gun. It, he actually didn't. The gun was actually stored in Wisconsin. So uh, there doesn't seem to be any federal charge that would fit his situation. Hmm. Professor John Gross, University of Wisconsin Law, Law School, thank you so much, sir, for joining me today on, on the Public Morality. Much appreciate it. Happy to be here. Thanks so much. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron 
at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Rally on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Public Rally at their studios. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.